Well, while you're finding your seats, let me just say um, thank you for the privilege of being able to do this with you. It is a privilege to get into the Word of God. It is a particular privilege. I share this with Tim about preaching. Um, This is something I wouldn't normally do, study a passage really in depth, get out commentaries and study it. So I feel like, if nothing else, uh, I receive a tremendous blessing from the opportunity to do this, so I'm very grateful for it. And I trust that the Lord is going to use the word today to direct us, to affect us, to remind us of his love for us. Um, I will be preaching from James 5, verses 7 through 20. So if you could take your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to James 5, verses 7 through 20. I will be focusing my attention uh, primarily on the verses 13 through 20, which was my assignment. But we're going to read verses 7 through 12 to provide a little context, some very important context, I believe, as we'll see. So we'll start reading James 5, verses 7 through 20. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there are pew Bibles you can follow along. They're a little different translation, but uh, but it will be close. James 5, verses 7 through 20. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses of scripture. We thank you for the important message that is in them. Thank you for the message of grace. And Lord, as we spend some time together here in it, Lord, we just pray for listening ears. We pray for open spiritual eyes so that we may see and hear and drink in what you are teaching us today and apply it to our hearts and be changed. And Lord, as I preach, I just pray that you would help me to be accurate, to be uh, clear, and to grace, grace me as I teach so that we may learn what you have for us today from your word. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the preciousness of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Waiting. We have all experienced it from time to time, maybe more than we would have liked to. We have waited for buses, we have waited for news, we have waited for a response from a university or a job that we have applied to. We have waited for our turn, we have waited to get well, we have waited for an event that we are really looking forward to. We have waited for someone to come and restore a relationship. The list goes on and on. All of us have waited. And in fact, believers and unbelievers alike. However, Christians wait as a way of life. We are waiting for our promise to be fulfilled. We are waiting for heaven. We are waiting for the return of Christ. These things, we haven't realized these things yet. So I think most of us can therefore relate to this question While I'm here waiting, what am I here for? What is the purpose of this life? I'm convinced that as we go through the text that we are looking at today, some answers to these very good, in fact, these very fundamental questions about life will be answered. And we will see this, that for every situation in the Christian life, there is a corresponding faith response. And James leads us through three, what we're going to call, or we could call case studies or applications of this point, that there's an appropriate faith response for every situation in life by showing us the gifts of praise, prayer, and mutual care. Now, in these concluding verses of his epistle, James' intention is deeply Pastoral. He is caring for and shepherding the flock towards the goal of an experience of grace motivated by faith, lived out in the reality of our bodies. This may not immediately be clear from a reading of the passage, because really this passage, you, when you listen to it, it really could be viewed as a list of instructions. Let him pray. You sing praise. Call on the elders of the church. Pray for healing. Confess your sins. And it could just be a list, almost, almost legalistic in tone. But these verses, 13 through 20, are actually very much connected to the verses 7 through 12, which is why I included them in the reading. Those verses deal with the, um, 
return of Christ. It says God is coming. He's worth waiting for. And this blessed life that verse 11 talks about, we consider those blessed who may remain steadfast, is for now. It is, um, it is a purpose of purposeful waiting, the, the life of purposeful waiting. James really wants to get the, the physical part of our existence, our, our self, our bodies, humming in tune with what we have accepted with our minds in the preceding passage and get those two working in tandem. So if there is a question that James wants us to answer, it is this. If God is coming full of grace, power, mercy, are we expressing that with our body, through our actions, through our speaking, through our lives, by living in grateful, powerful, merciful ways, are we expressing with our lifestyle that we believe this? Now, to bring a little clarity to this concept, in verse 11, James uses Job's walk of faith as an example. Job had a very real, very tactile, very sensuous. I'm going to use the word sensuous. Sensuous has a bad connotation. But I mean sensuous in the sense that it it happened to his senses, his sight, his hearing, his speaking, his body. It was affected. His family was killed. His property was destroyed and robbed. His body was covered from head to toes with painful sores. He felt the emotional and physical pain and loss in his body, in his physical existence. And his faith remained steadfast as he refused to curse God or sin under the physical and emotional pressure to do so. His faith was walked out in his body. If we are going to live out our faith, we must live it out in our body, right? James calls this works and states that faith is not complete until it moves out into works. He says, faith is completed by works. So this is what I'm trying to get at is that let's think of faith or let's think of works as faith walked out in our body, in our physical existence as a way of understanding the passage. We're going to get exhortations, things that we have to do. This is really the overarching message of the book of James as we have gone through it with the preaching team. James really is saying, if we have faith, it will be demonstrated in an active lifestyle of faith. So, why am I spending so much time at the front end of the message clarifying the relationship between the promises of verses 7 through 11 and the exhortations of verses 12 through 20? Between faith and actions, between what we accept with our minds and what we express through our physical existence or through our bodies. Because before I come alongside James to call you to these exhortations of Scripture, I want to be clear about this. These exhortations are pure grace. If we don't understand that, then this will be a very discouraging book, and this is a very discouraging passage.
to anyone who is sinful. And we are all sinful. Then this will appear to be a book full of things that we have to do with our weak and wavering bodies or need to do better. And it becomes law. And in time, even the strongest among us, those with, who are the biggest goal-oriented people among us that just won't quit, will eventually fail and come away deeply discouraged. But that is not James' intention for us, folks. He wants to show us a way in these verses of demonstrating genuine peace, genuine service, hope, and joy. So, as we look at these verses, let's look at these verses through the lens of grace as James exhorts us to praise, prayer, and mutual care. We'll be looking at the grace gift, if you can put that up on the overhead, of praise, the grace gift of prayer, and the grace gift of mutual care. The gift of praise. Let's start with the first grace gift of praise in verse 13. Let me read it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, the verse introduces suffering first. And addresses it with prayer. Let's just set that aside for a minute. We're going to come back to that. But I want to handle that with the section on prayer that will follow. But verse 13 also addresses happiness. We are sometimes cheerful, right? And as a Christian, if there are never seasons of cheerfulness in my life, I think I got to look and say, I think something's wrong. If you think deeply about life, often the end of that reflection for a Christian should be a smile, a song, an inner cheer, even an audible shout. Because things are going to turn out good for us. Things are going to be good. Think about this. One day, Josh actually talked about the holiness of God today. One day we'll be confronted with a perfectly holy God. It's going to be a staggering And for some, a fearful experience. We may imagine that we begin to say, God, I'm sorry. I I didn't realize I am so ashamed. And that he then interrupts you and says, no, 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 no more. Let me welcome you into my arms. I do not have judgment for you. What I have here is compassion and love, and mercy. Your curse and guilt have been completely removed. And then we remember the scriptures that say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And another place where it says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now You have received mercy. And our shame gives way to the eternal gratitude and praise and joy that we will then feel forever. We have every reason to be happy. And when we are, it makes sense to sing, to dance, to laugh, while we reflect on the excellent qualities of God. Think about it. Nothing could be more natural, right? That's what we all do when we're really, really happy and something really, really good happens. 
And this promise of heaven is really, really good. So Christians should have seasons of happiness. And you need to sing, literally and in your soul. So let's be heard singing songs. Let's, when you're doing your, your housework, ladies, let's hear you sing those hymns. Guys, on your way off to work, we ought to be whistling. Let's put that on our iPods and, and listen to that. Let's, let's get busy with that because it's a blessing from God. It's one of the grace gifts that he wants to give us to help us live out our faith. And we'll pull back a little cur- corner of the curtain t- to heaven and give us a peek because that's what heaven's going to be like. Sing, 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 praise, praise, praise. So when you're happy, sing praise. Now, before we get into verses 18 through of 14 through 18, the verses that present the second grace gift of prayer. I want to show you something about this passage. We're going to put it up on the overhead. This helped me form my emphasis, and maybe you will find it convincing too. I'm going to read it quickly and emphasize the words that I think uh, need to be emphasized there. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. and Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So, what is this passage about, do you think? Exposition 101, look at the action verbs. And what is the pattern? Prayer, right? Okay, so I briefly consider titling the sermon, Pray, Pray, Prayer, Pray, Prayer, Pray, Pray. But uh, maybe that's an oversimplification. There's truly a little more body to the message of these verses. It handles the circumstance of sickness. But if that's the body, then prayer is clearly the backbone and the skeleton that gives shape and form and strength to that body. Now, a common contemporary, and I would say an illegitimate use of this text, is the debate surrounding the continuation of the gift of healing. And any systematic theology uh, on healing would have to contend with these verses, whether they're in favor or not. These verses would have to be dealt with. However, the main emphasis of the text in these verses is on prayer and its function in the church. In these verses, we see the grace gift of prayer functioning in three ways. Praying for oneself, requesting prayer, and praying for each other. The gift of prayer. The first half of verse 13 is an exhortation for us to pray for ourselves. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. We are simply to turn every difficulty and obstacle into prayer. Do you do this? I would just ask you to please develop this discipline as, one of, as your habit. I think so many of us, including myself, I've had many seasons like this, preaching to you and preaching to myself. I think many of us suffer unnecessary hardship, pressures, discouragement. 
because instead of our habit being to pray our sufferings over to God, our habit is instead to stew, to fret, to worry, to weep. What are the promises with regards to worry? Feeling sorry for yourself, being offended in the scriptures. What are the promises? There's promises. But you don't want those promises. If something's not going well, James says, loosen your death grip on the circumstances and place it in God's capable hands and relax and trust God for the outcome. There are promises for that as well. There's peace that has been promised for those, for trusting God with your very burdens. There's a strong tower that you can run into if you'll trust God with your burdens. Those are the promises that you want. If you're suffering, pray and turn your suffering over to God. I cannot say it any better than that. It is simple. But simple to say, simple to believe, harder to do. But it is a gift from God. Verse 14. Let me get a drink of water here. Verse 14 turns to a specific example of suffering illness. Someone is physically sick. So we want to observe how that is handled. We observe the sick person, first of all, reaching out and calling for the elders of the church. So the patient is taking the initiative, humbling himself. So firstly, the sick person must demonstrate a posture of humble dependence on God expressed in his dependence on the church, specifically the leaders of the church in this case. And I just want to address the men for a second. Um, This could cover other Members of the church, if you're a woman and this applies to you, please do not feel like I'm saying you're unfeminine. But I believe this is something that men mostly struggle with, so I'm asking you all to wake up for a second and pay attention. We struggle with admitting that we are weak. And yet, from this blessed humility, God wants to bring blessing into our lives. I just think we need to get over it. Of course we're going to be weak. These bodies, we're dying on our way to heaven. That's what's happening. The parts are breaking down. I can attest to it, guys. I'm 42 years old. The parts are getting creaky. I'm serious. I used to play soccer. Now I wobble around. You know, um, Admitting our weakness is a prerequisite for humility, and humility is a prerequisite for prayer. We see that in the passage, see? right? First, You admit that first the person is weak, they're ill. Then they call out in humility. And then prayer follows. So maybe as an aside, that's maybe why men tend to struggle more with having their their quiet times than women do. It's just a failure to admit that we're weak. So in the morning, we don't feel like we need God. What do we need God for? We're going out there, we're going to get him. I think the, the scriptures would teach us otherwise. So let's work on that. The humility of calling out here helps pave the way to prayer in the passage. Secondly, the sick person. So first, the sick person must demonstrate posture of humility. Second, the sick person appears to be one who is ill. He can't go out to the elders. The elders have to come to him. 
I referenced three commentaries, and they all agreed on this, and it seemed very little else, I might add, showing how difficult James is to exposit. And they were all good commentaries by good guys. So this example seems to be clear, clearly referring to a situation where a member of the church is more than a little sick. Now, as we're going to see soon, this does not limit people in the church praying for people who are sick. We don't have to be deathly ill before we get prayer for, for healing. However, this does speak to how we handle this particular kind of illness in church life. When we are very sick, we need to request prayer. We need to ask the shepherds of the church to come and minister. James is making it very clear that if anyone has the qualification of an elder, he can be expected to pray for healing and indeed has the responsibility to do this. Interesting. It's not faith healers from outside the local church who are parachuted in to pray for the sick person. It is not even people within the local church who have been identified with the gift of healing. And folks, my personal conviction and the conviction of this church is there are people with the gift of healing and healing happens. But in this specific case, the assignment is for the elders. Now, the fact that James assigned this task to the elders may show that in a situation where someone is seriously ill, it may also require other shepherding, such as counsel and wisdom. The passage on sin may suggest that James expected other elements of pastoral wisdom to come into play with a request for healing. For instance, a sick person could get discouraged and need to be reassured that God sees their suffering and loves them and hasn't abandoned them. They could be getting bitter at God for the trial. It's been lasting a long time. Does God not care? They may be feeling guilty for the way that uh, their illness has put strain on somebody who's caring for them. We can speculate about that. Very clear and beyond speculation, however, is that the elders are to come and pray. The elders pray over the sick person with a presumed maturity in prayer that should be characteristic of an overseer. And the prayer makes the sick person well. Verse 15, you'll see that. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. It is the prayer. Now, it mentions anointing oil as part of the visit. Let's just quickly look at that. The the oil may play a medicinal or even symbolic or prophetic role in the healing It is unclear how the oil really functions in the passage. But it's very clear that James indicates that the prayer, not the oil, is the cause of the healing. So we have every freedom to use oil as part of a healing prayer. And it may, in fact, be very helpful. It may impart just a special blessing, uh, may consecrate the, the time of prayer. There's different ways where it could be helpful. However, we want to place the emphasis where the text does, and it is prayer by the church for the church that heals the church. And I think that it's not just physical healing that will be affected by the praying. James is going in this text for ultimate wellness, not just physical wellness, although that is certainly also being taught. But God is not going to physically heal every time that we pray. People die. And even if we are healed or raised from the dead, we will still physically die 
one day, eventually, unless the Lord returns first. So as, as James goes through the exhortation, as, as he progresses through it, he begins to broaden the language of physical healing to the, the language and the terminology of salvation. In verse 15, the prayer of the elders saves and raises up. Those are redemptive, salvation type of, t- of terms. And then he also talks in verse 16 about sins being forgiven and connects that to the language of physical healing, that you may be healed. That sounds like physical healing, and I believe he's mixing this up. Ultimately, James believed that prayer will be 100% effective to full spiritual wellness, which includes your spiritual being, but also your physical being. Listen to how scripture brings the perspective of the importance of this physical, uh, this spiritual health. So, so we do, can we put that up on the overhead? This is from Second uh, Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that's our physical part, our inner self, our spirit, is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, again, that's the physical part of our existence, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, unseen, are eternal. The physical things of this world, including our bodies, will pass. But our spirits, which are unseen, will last forever. It is vitally important that we receive prayer for physical healing. And it is more important that we receive prayer for spiritual healing. So we pray for ourselves and we request prayer. And in this way, we'll see the full, the health of the entire being of the church be improved. Now, as we arrive at verse 16, which will be our third point under the heading of prayer, you will notice that a shift has occurred. And who does the prayer now? Not just the elders, but the entire church body is engaged. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That is the whole church praying for the whole church. And what do we pray about? Well, we're going to look at the example of Elijah in just a second in our conclusion of handling the the exhortation of prayer to look at how effective prayer is, the efficacy of prayer. But the example of Elijah has another purpose in the text. It also shows us God is... the, The example of Elijah, when he prayed, he was praying so that the people of Israel would see that there, were, there was a God who was sovereign over all things, including the rain, including the crops, and that he is to be feared, worshipped, that he is the living God. Well, that has nothing to do with suffering, or um, that has nothing to do with being sick or confessing our sins, the things that James has already been dealing with. So he's expanding the scope of where prayer goes. And now he's saying, we all pray for everyone, for everything. So what do we pray about? We pray for God to avert suffering. We pray to be healed. We pray, pray, pray for one another's sins. By prayer offered in all seasons, in all circumstances, we will experience life-changing grace and power in this church. Nobody in this room, nobody in this room from young to old escapes the shade of the broad parasol 
that James is spreading over the church as he calls us to pray. We pray for one another. We all pray for one another. And then, to put the the explanation mark on this exhortation, James addresses the efficacy of prayer. Does prayer work? Is it worth it? He uses Elijah as an example to illustrate that prayer is, in fact, for everyone. And powerful prayer is for everyone. Elijah, a man just as human as all of us here, right? I know. I know what you're thinking. His prayers seem sort of superhuman. He prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. You're saying he's just as human as all of us? Well, look at verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. With a nature like ours. By saying with a nature like ours, God's opening up the power of prayer to all of redeemed humanity, to all Christians, and declaring that it wasn't anything divine in Elijah's nature that caused his prayers to be heard and tremendous power to flow. So what's the key? What is it? Look at verse 16b. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God loves righteousness and answers to it. Jesus is our righteousness. God answers to Jesus. It's the righteousness of Christ that gives you your standing, your audience before God. If you are his child, if you have trusted him for the forgiveness of sins, you are now as righteous as Christ. And you can expect to receive the same pleasure from God and have the same audience before God as Christ enjoys and which Elijah experienced as he called out to God. Because God the Father takes pleasure in his son Jesus. So, ordinary people in Sovereign Grace Church Toronto, with your fallen human natures coiled about you for this short season on earth, if we do not pray for one another, we are ignoring one of the main means of grace that God has ordained for the health of this church. Yes, we admit it. This church is far from perfect. Anyone who has been here for a while knows that. The only ones who may not know that are a brand new visitor. And if you spend another hour or two with us, you will know this. We are not perfect. But remember this. God has graced us. God has blessed us with this grace gift of prayer. And if we do not use it, then we better get used to disappointment. Disappointment in the church. And we better not point the finger. If we don't pray, peace will flee. Love will flee away. Spiritual health will wane. Sin will fester. And God, who in every way wants to reveal himself to us, will seem distant, far away, absent. 
But if we do, we will enjoy answered prayer. And God will pour out his grace on his beloved Sovereign Grace Toronto for the sake of his Son, to whom he answers. For the sake of the righteousness of Christ, to which he answers. And I believe we've got to be praying for it. I think we ought to be pr- praying for a revival of this, not only in this church, but in the worldwide church. If we see a revival of prayer in churches across the world, there's going to be an amazing response from God as he grants the requests of his people. I just feel that prophetically that we've got to start praying this for our church and we've got to pray this for the worldwide church. I wonder if we could start doing that together. I believe that would honor God. Look at the last word from James on prayer as he references the text that we read prior to the break, which Nathan read for so well. Verse 18, Then he, that's Elijah, prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Could it be that James is calling Sovereign Grace Toronto to take up prayer as a mighty weapon for his local church? Could it be that James is, that this uh, gift of prayer could be like the later rain in verse 7 that the farmer's waiting for that will bring a harvest of fruit into the storehouse of our fellowship? Because of he who promised it, it could. Because of him who has secured our audience before the Father, it could. Could expect to be heard and for God to take pleasure in your prayer and so to grant what you ask. And we will see healing of every kind when and only when we pray. Prepare to be amazed if you take these words seriously. But please don't imagine that they are words for someone else. Young kids here this morning who are Christians, wake up. This is for you. Elders of the church, wake up. This is for you. Moms and dads, wake up. This is for you. Students, wake up. This is for you. Single people, wake up. This is for you. Ron Gleason, wake up. This is for you. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. The gift of prayer is for you. You can choose to snub this gift. You can return it to its sender, God. Or you can take off the wrapping paper and cherish the gift and enjoy it and praise God for it. And so we come to the last gift. In verses 19 through 20, the gift of mutual care. This gift of mutual care is really an extension of a life of prayer in the church. Because when we pray to God and become intimate with him, with his personality, with his desires, with his will we will soon detect the wanderer. We'll soon detect the wanderer because God detects the wanderer. God is the good shepherd 
who leaves the 99 sheep and goes after the one lost sheep. So those who pray are best positioned to both discern error, discern wandering, and to bring humble correction and care. And I say, this is so important, humble correction. We are not the policemen for each other. With the cherries going off, pull on over, you broke the law. No, we're the shepherds. We're shepherding each other. We're worried. We're concerned about the sheep who has wandered away. We want to bring them back. The place where it's good. It's not a slap on the hand. It's bringing them back under. We bring correction humbly. We will need that correction one day. Remember that when you're bringing correction. So those who pray are best positioned to both discern error and to bring humble correction and care. To see the sin as God sees it. And also the potential for reconciliation and victory as God sees it. We got to see both of those things. We got to keep both of these things in view, both of these things in balance. There's sin, but there's grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And God's heart is to reconcile sinful man to God. That's why He sent Jesus to die for us, for the purpose of reconciliation. It's the purpose of the gospel. Man reconciled to God. Unbelievable. Incredible. And so, by doing so, to highlight the eternal glory and praiseworthiness of God. To demonstrate forever what verse 11 teaches. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And when we gently correct the Wanderer, which all of us are from time to time, we enter into this ministry of deep and merciful love for which God has equipped us, to which he has called us. And we will experience significance as we wait for his return. James just illustrated to you what you are here on earth for. Remember the question from the introduction? What are we here for? What's the point? To seek, to rescue sinners to the glory of God. So, what does that mean? That means that when someone strays from the teaching of, teachings of Christ, is failing to live in love, is working for their faith. Lois gave us the, the picture of the rowing, 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 instead of the wind being in our sails, working for their faith. If they are lacking in graceful speech and respectful attitudes, is falling into various temptations, Someone is accepting discouragement. Not that we don't get discouraged sometimes, but accepting it, living with it, and on and on and on. We imitate Christ. We seek to rescue. That's what we're here for. This is our Christian privilege. The way we enter into Christ's redemptive works. What a privilege. What a blessing. Now, you may be sitting there going, Rot, this is, that's for pastors, that's for... Small group leaders, but that's not me. You don't think you're responsible for the sins of others? The Bible does. It's making the claim here. And in other places, makes the claim even stronger. Listen to the author of Hebrews. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, 
as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You are to take care or you will fall away. Do you see that? When there are some among us who are wandering away and an evil, unbelieving heart is beginning to develop, it leads all of us away from the living God. You are to exhort. It's a gift for you to bring humble, servant-like correction and care. It's a gift for you to enter into the labors of the good shepherd. So one last question remains then. How? How do we rescue the wanderer? The text says in verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The wanderer has walked away from truth. And what do we do to have to bring him back? You have to get them back. You have to get them close to, beside, intertwined with the truth of God's word. The truth of the word thought, believed, lived. We must correct with the word. By the way, have we talked about humility? The word will always keep us humble. We must express the love and grace of the word. We must prescribe the way of forgiveness as prescribed by the word. And we must hold out the promises in the word. To conclude, James' message is that we must and can live out faith at every turn in a life that expresses and lives with these grace gifts. We will sing. We will pray for each other's healing. We will humble ourselves before each other. We will care for each other. Seek to rescue one another. And by practicing this in faith, we will see the blessings that God has ordained for you, for this church. And if we don't, our spiritual eyes will remain blind to the blessing. They will not see the reality that God means to fill you with grace to lead you to heaven. These gifts are not something that help us to get there. These gifts are the overflow of the expression of joy as we are on our way to heaven. On our way to the eternal presence of Christ. On our way to an eternal experience of an exhilarating quantity of glory and joy. So, if you haven't started the steps towards this life of living by grace, let's take our first baby steps together as a church by embracing these simple gifts who yet carry a profound effect, these gifts of grace, praise, prayer, and mutual care. And as we embrace them, By grace, we pray that God will develop it into a wobbly walk, some solid stepping, a dance, a trot, and a full-blown run to glory. And if we are hampered and trip, pull up a little lame, are sick, tempted, wind up on a stretcher, we live with the comfort that our Savior will carry us home on his grace. For you are deeply loved by a Savior who is returning for you soon. The coming of the Lord is at hand.
For this we wait. Let's wait as James has so lovingly proposed, armed with the grace gifts of God.